0: I'm really glad you joined us today for this important conversation with a fellow broadcaster and someone who is using his platform outside of his regular job to bring awareness to health challenges he faces to try to help others. Chris Carino is the play-by-play announcer for the Brooklyn Nets and founder of the Chris Carino Foundation. He's been a part of the Nets broadcasts since 1992 and started as a producer and then a reporter where he worked his way up to being a host and then his current job as the voice of the Brooklyn Nets. Chris was diagnosed with a type of muscular dystrophy known as fascio humeral muscular dystrophy, also known as FSHD. It's a genetic disorder that has resulted in the progressive weakening of the muscles, mostly in Chris's shoulders and upper limbs. He decided to talk about living with FSHD to help others in 2011, and he established the Chris Carino Foundation for FSHD. It's one of only three organizations specifically focused on this type of muscular dystrophy. Please welcome my talented and fearless guest, the amazing... Chris Carino. Chris Carino, I want to start off by saying you made the Dean's List.
1: That is impressive because (laughs) I never was able to do that before, so... (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh,
0: you're welcome. I, I love I starting. Never, it's
1: never, it's never too, I'm never too old to, to do something for the first time.
0: That's right. And and as soon as we get some kind of uh, document, I will send it to you.
1: <laughs> that please, so I can put it up next to my diploma. <laughs> Say that I was on the dean's list.
0: Oh, well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You have an amazing career um and and obviously I feel a bit of a kinship because I'm someone uh that was diagnosed with a chronic illness 20 years ago uh and you know came out and told my audience that I was living with MS and I was nervous about it I had people tell me not to uh people in the industry saying you do that and it's going to be a mark against you. You're not going to advance mm. in your career, uh, and I'm. It's one of the best things I think I've ever done, and and so I love that you have come out uh, with your diagnosis, it, a, a form of multi, um, muscular dystrophy. Correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And tell me uh, about that. Tell. I know that there's, you know, there's different variations of the illness.
1: Yeah, there. there you know, when I when I was told by a doctor that in and this is in my early twenties that you have some kind of a muscular dystrophy. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a blow. And, 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 and it, and it's a shock because at the time I said to the doctor, wait a minute, that's, that's the kids on Mm. uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon that I grew up watching. And, And he said, no, there's, there's different types of muscular dystrophy and they, um, they can manifest themselves when, when you're young or they can do it when you're an adult. So that was a, a, you know, something that, that I didn't realize could happen. So suddenly you're just thinking you're going to the doctor because I'm having some weakness and, and I'm thinking, well, he'll, he'll, he'll prescribe some medication mm. or he'll, he'll tell me some vitamins to take. And no, they tell you there's, there's nothing you can do. Mm. Go live your life. And, um, you know I relate to what you were saying a little bit before, and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, as we go along here in the conversation. but um at that moment for me um, it wasn't it wasn't life altering you know it was a bit concerning mm-hmm. uh, I, I if if I was walking uh and i and I might stumble or or step in a in a crack or something like i I might fall, but you're you know you're twenty something years old, you just get back up and yeah yeah, you notice that my arm was getting a little skinny and I couldn't run the way I used to, but these are not life-changing events. Mm. Um, it's a gradual process. Uh, the scary part is the mental part of it. You're, mm. you're now being, you're, you're now given a diagnosis where, all right, this is what's going to happen to you over the next 10 years, over the next 20 years. And suddenly all these things that you thought you were going to, uh, the ways you were going to live your life are now... You have that in the back of your mind. Mm. And my whole approach was, well, I, this thing is going to rob me of a lot of things over the course of time. I'm not going to let it rob me of the, the hopes and dreams that I have for my life. Oh, my god. You know, goodness. at that time, at that time, I was I was trying to embark on a, you know, as we, we mentioned, this broadcasting as a career um, is incredibly competitive. The odds of making it are so long and now I've got to deal with this, but I'm not, I'm just going to push that in the back of my mind and I'm just going to go forward. I mean, I had dreams of, you know, one day meeting someone that I'd fall in love with, having a family, mm. all these things. I just was determined that this was not going to take that away from me.
0: Wow. And um, I mean, yeah. you arrived at that conclusion fairly quickly? Or how did you get there? Because I, I went through a very dark period. I mean, everything sort of was very negative in my eyes. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in a wheelchair someday. I went, I went there because I thought, well, I didn't know much about MS at the time. um, But what I did know about it, you know, people are in wheelchairs. um, And I just went to the darkest of places. I really did for a few weeks.
1: I, I'm not that type of person. Um, I, I, I really never, I very rarely go to dark places. Okay. It happens every once in a while. I think for a, a little bit, there was denial for me Okay, and not realizing the severity. Cause again, like you're telling me this stuff, but I, you know, the doctor's saying this stuff to me, but I don't feel that much different than I did before I walked mm-hmm. in here. Okay. Um, yes, things are a little there. I notice I, I used to play a lot, of, you know, I'd play uh softball for, you know, a beer league, rec league and, Suddenly, you know, guys are saying, what's going on with you? You can't run like you used to, you know, like, uh, I'd be playing basketball and the ball would feel really heavy, you know, and I was not shooting the way I used to because I was athletic, you know, when I was a kid. And, uh, so yeah, it's a little concerning, but I think for me, it was more, I'm, I'm, I'm a very, all right, you, you told me something, what can I do mm. and I'll do it. And if I can't, I'm not going to worry about it. Like there's, if they say to me, well, there's no, there's no treatment. There's nothing, there's no prescription we can write. Okay, well, what do I do? And the doctor would say, well, you can, you, you just do what you can. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. Wow. I'm just going to go out and do what I can. You know, well, and, and I didn't really talk about it a lot, going back to what you were saying, mm-hmm. but I hadn't made it yet. You know, like I, I was just, I was, you know, a, just basically above an intern at this point Yeah. in my, in my career. I had a lot of confidence. I mean, in college I was, you know, at Fordham University in the Bronx in New York, uh, the, the, the radio station WFUV, which has produced everyone from Vince Scully to Mike Breen. Uh, and, and now I was there working. I'm, I'm learning my broadcasting craft from the legendary uh, broadcaster Marty Glickman, who's teaching me how to do play-by-play, the guy who basically almost like invented it, wow. was teaching it to me. Yeah. I'm winning awards in college. Like I am, I'm on my way. And I'm trying and I'm not now I get this and I'm like, well, is this going to affect me doing play by play? I mean, the only thing it would affect is I I told, you know, I got an agent um, a a few years later and I told him, I said, listen, I can't I can't be a sideline guy who's going to run up and down stairs or chase coaches or players like that. Like you just need to know physically I have some issues, but otherwise it's it's perfectly fine. Wow. And. You know, I just had to deal with things as we, as you go along, as they come.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. But I'll tell you what, I didn't, when I first got diagnosed, I didn't want to even meet anyone who had it. Wow. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to see myself in 10 years, in 20 years. That's just the way I coped with it. Yeah. I don't know if that was particularly healthy, but that's just the way I coped with it. And then later on down the road, it kind of just, uh, exploded and and all came out.
0: Tell me, so what were the symptoms, and what was what was the prognosis?
1: Uh, you know, I noticed that there was some like I mentioned the weakness about you know in a running or playing a sport. I noticed things, or occasionally I might if I'm if I was just walking on a sidewalk and you hit something that's uneven. You know, you, things you don't think about when you're a healthy individual is sometimes you're just walking down the sidewalk you may be looking up you may be looking at a sign or you may be watching your phone or you're not worried about if the slightest little uh if the sidewalk goes up a few inches that and you know you're walking you may stumble and if, for a normal person they just they, they stumble a second and then they just keep walking mm-hmm. for me i would fall mm-hmm. or my my legs would just give out and i would fall down and i would say wow this is this is a you know i might have to go to a doctor you know Mm-hmm. Um, and then the prognosis is, well, you know, it, FSHD is, it stands for fascio humeral dystrophy. Okay. Uh, and it's, it fascio is face, scapular muscles, humeral muscles. That's all part of the name of the disease. So it affects all these different muscles in your body. Um, and it can affect people in a variety of ways. Some people, it, it, it really affects some muscles over the others. Um, some it's don't really even know they might have it until they're well into their life Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm kind of in the middle you know i kind of was in the middle and the prognosis was well you know there's there's nothing you can do right now okay um except just try and be as healthy as you can and adjust to life as it comes and then you may need things to help you along i mean i'm a wheelchair user now yeah but um you know i can i can still i can still walk and i'll do it in the in my house occasionally but, but I try to, to use the wheelchair as much as I can because of the risk of falling. Mm. And especially now when I'm out in, in public or I'm zipping around arenas. And here's the thing about it, Janice. And I, and I know that this is something you mentioned in terms of, you know, a, a fear that you had when you got diagnosed with MS. Um, the, the, one of the, the things I did right after the diagnosis, I went to a rehab uh, facility, you know, just a, a you know, physical rehabilitation. Um, and the concern was that I I had is that realizing I was at a very good, uh, rehab place. Um, but the people didn't know anything about it. It's such a rare thing. And I said, well, you really don't know what can help me. Um, so that was, that was a concern. I didn't want to do anything that would actually harm me. But the other thing was this woman I'm talking to, she said to me, you know, I have, I, I know someone who has this. And I said, "Wow! All right, great." Well, you know, she goes, "Oh, yeah. He was a basketball player." And I said, "Oh, is he still play basketball?" No, he's. She said, "He's in a wheelchair." And I, I you know, I, I got angry for her even telling me that. Yeah. And I swear, for the next two decades, I was basically trying to outrun that wheelchair. Mm. And that was like the biggest fear for me. And what happens is you spend all this time fearing something mm-hmm. and then when you're actually faced with it, when I actually ended up starting to use one, you wonder why did I fear this so much? Wow. Why did I spend so much energy and, and so much of my brain power fearing this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes i think you we we fear that, that quote about what you we fear more in imagination than in yes. reality
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, I, and and here's the thing about it if i had to go from the day i was diagnosed into the next day having to use a wheelchair it would be a it would be much more impactful in my psych psychology and in in, uh, in my life but over a course of it took 20 years it's a gradual thing. And what happens is as you're getting close to making that decision, um, your life's not good. You know, when I, when I all of a sudden started to fall more, when I started to, um, be way more shaky on my feet than I, than anyone knew or that I ever admitted, even sometimes maybe to myself, that's a dark place. Right because you're you're a, you now start avoiding things mm. things that you love to do you're making excuses not to do because you know you might not be able to do them mm. you know if i wanted to go to a ball game with my son i was now something i loved to do with him i was getting to a point where i was afraid to be out in crowds cuz somebody was going to knock me over i couldn't get out of a chair by myself like and I was going to have to ask somebody for help there. If I was going to have to get out of a chair, like I couldn't go up the stairs. Like, and I would now make excuse. Well, I'm busy, I'm tired. I don't want to do it. So you're suddenly not doing stuff that you love to do. And that's no way to live. Yes. So when I started using, I mean, the day we brought, we went to a you know, local place. It wasn't anything that I went to a doctor and got fitted for some, just, I needed something to just help me get around and my wife Laura and I went to this place, and we just came home with it, with it, uh, an electric chair, you know, electric wheelchair, um, that we had to buy a ramp to get it in the in the van, in the car, and then you know, then you take care of all those logistical issues. But at the time, I was, I finally had gotten to that point where I said, I'm going to start doing this, and we're driving home, and I'm, I'm, I'm in tears. <laughs> and my wife is is just saying to me that she's proud of me because that is such a huge decision to finally be vulnerable enough to say i need help and and i i'm, I'm going to put myself in in a position where people are going to look at me now differently than they ever have before but this is going to help me connect more with the world yes and when you first start wheeling around it's tough when you're seeing people for the first time who have seen you you're, you're now and i'm now in my late 40s and you, you don't want people to be concerned because i'm like listen it's still me it's the same me yeah i'm just wheeling around and trust me this is so much better now yeah that's the that's the the lesson I think that comes out of it.
0: It's that was beautiful, uh, uh, truly. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
1: Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.
0: I think that now almost 20 years for me being diagnosed. If I get up one morning, and it certainly can happen with multiple sclerosis, I can literally get up one day and not be able to stand up. Mm. Um, I know that I would be much better equipped to go to that next level because uh, I know I have the love and support of my family. And I know that the place that I work would support that as well. Uh, You know, my friend Neil Cavuto, back Mm -hmm. when I talked to him about being diagnosed with MS, because he was a pioneer and somebody that came out and said that he was also diagnosed. I was very lucky to have someone, you know, very close to me at work that had the same diagnosis. He said to me, Janice, they'll build build his and her wheelchair ramps. Don't worry about that. Uh, and so I always take that with me, and absolutely, and and I think that is important because if that happens, yeah. then it happens. But it doesn't change us. It doesn't yeah. change my love for my family, my love for my work, and and if you have the love and support of others, you know, then you're you're going to be okay.
1: That that was the thing, you know. For me, I mean, just to know that my wife was saying to me, she was proud of me for making yeah. that decision. It wasn't like she was uh, worried now right. about logistics of it. No, it was like whatever we have to do. Yes. I mean, that's kind of the you do whatever you have to do. Now, I I, I did I did read an article about uh, you were talking about you and Neil and and when you were diagnosed and Neil saying you know telling you I think Roger Ailes said you know we'll build a ramp yep. for Neil. You know, I'm not gonna don't worry about it. Um, I understand that that's the logistics of it become an issue and and that's for for a lot of people who aren't as fortunate enough to work in in businesses where their own their their uh their bosses are that supportive or mm-hmm. um if you don't have the job and you're trying to go get the job yes you know that can be an issue i mean even me i've had issues when it started happening where you know the the different broadcast locations around the country were not accessible mm. and and i've had to have some It's an ongoing battle and that people want to help, but it's sometimes it's logistics of they it's just they don't it's just not in the cards. And I've had issues with even, you know, getting on the team charter to fly to different places. And I've had to fly commercial some places because I, I, you know, I can't get on and off the charter Mm -hmm. in in certain cities. Like it's an issue. It is. But you just got to keep pounding away at it. And I think people want to help you. I think even when you, you know, your places, you know, you just may want to go to a restaurant and people think, well, there's only a small step. Well, that's that's a (laughs) that's a big small step might as well be an eight foot wall. Yeah. You know, so people I just think people don't realize it. And and amongst the many things I'm trying to do and be an example for people with FSHD, be an example uh, for anybody going through difficult times. Also, now that I'm using a wheelchair, uh, try and be an advocate. Yes. For some of the accessibility issues that. You know we go through yeah um so I, that was a big thing but i but i did i've been i've been with the nets and you know that's my main job for you know 30 years wow so you're part of the family yes and uh and they will do anything to try and help you out and uh and and do whatever you can but but that was the thing with me was when i first when i first put it out there to the world you know because the other part of it and you, you this is something you touched on also was early on, I mean, I went many, many years, almost, you know, two decades almost, without telling anyone. Mm. And I think what happens is you'll hide it as long as you can hide it. Mm -hmm. And I probably wasn't hiding it as much as I thought I was. I think people always thought, oh, there's something physically he's got that's different, but "Eh, I'm not going to ask him, you know. Um, And even I wouldn't talk about it with close friends or family. It's like they knew I had it, but I didn't really discuss how how I felt about it or what they can do for me. I didn't ask for help. I wanted to be just completely independent, Mm. you know, put my head in the sand. Mm. And I always in the back of my mind though, thought if I can make a big enough name for myself, have something where it can be impactful when I come forward, I'll do it and do something where I can help people. And, um, we were at a point with my, my family, my wife and I have a son, um, and it it just got to a point where it was getting really difficult and it was starting to change my life where you know we might we went to a a diner one day my wife tells the story and i I was having trouble getting out of the booth and she got upset not at the fact that i couldn't get out of the booth but that i was i I kept not facing this the way i needed to Mm. that this was getting to a point in my life where i was going to need help and i was going to have to acknowledge what's going on as, as she eloquently puts it all the time and you know, I got back in, I always kind of knew there was not still nothing. I'd always followed the science. I would always talk to, uh, go online and see what new updates there might be. And there really wasn't anything, but there still was research that needed to be done. So I said, you know what, call it my midlife crisis. At this point, I'm like 40 years old. I'm like, well, it's time for me to start talking about it with people. <laughs> and I said, but I'm not just going to do it to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out with it publicly. You know, I have friends in the media who would write the story and have something, a mechanism in place where now we can help people. Because if, if we're fortunate enough to get a lot of attention for this, we have to have, I got to have something that now people can go to and we could start making this a productive conversation. So I started the, we started the Chris Carino Foundation for FSHD. Um, I was fortunate enough to hook up with some other people who had an organization and we kind of rebranded it and put my name on it because there was nothing, nobody had their name on anything with this. Mm. And it's so rare and it, it needed a face. I think it needed a human being attached to it. And then it got a lot of attention and we were able to raise a lot of money and we've given the money to to scientists and researchers and there's been a lot of breakthroughs and progress. Because what I want is I want people to know that when you get an FSHD diagnosis, your life is not over. And also that there's something down the road when you get an FSHD diagnosis, there's going to be a a prescription. There's gonna be something that can be done that was different than when you got it 30, 40 years ago. Hmm.
0: And what are the advancements that you've seen?
1: So when I first started getting involved, they were just at that point uh, after decades of research, they had gotten to a point where they, they found the cause. That it's basically not to get too much in the weeds with the science because even I don't understand it completely, but um, there's, a, there's a gene that they identified called DUX4 ducks for, and basically it is expressed in people with fshd and others you know healthy people it's not expressed it's something that's you know the body's an amazing thing something in in when you're in the process of uh of being born it gets turned off Hmm. so it has some sort of use in uh, natal development but then it gets turned off in FSHD, it's, it's a faucet that's still on. Wow. So that ducks for water is still running in your body. And what happens is it causes a, a protein to attack specific muscles in your body. Okay. So well, that was a huge, huge step in research to figure out, all right, now, because now we were just shooting uh, arrows. If you picture a boat in the middle of the ocean, but we can't see the boat. We have to shoot our arrow at the boat, but we can't see it. It's just, we're just shooting arrows into the ocean. Now, what this research did is it, it, it brought that target. It brought that boat into, into view. And now we just have to figure out how to hit it with the arrow. Wow! So there have been a lot of, uh, you know, even just things. I, I remember when I was diagnosed, um, a, a neurologist, I, well, years, years later, actually, when I started the idea of, of, of having a foundation i went to this neurologist who said to me um i was a little intimidated janice i gotta admit because i'm thinking medical research is a gazillion dollars you have to yes. put in um how am i going to raise a gazillion dollars uh so I, i'm talking to this neurologist and i tell him the idea and he says well i think it would be great because you'd be a resource for people who are diagnosed he goes but you know the research stuff Eh, it could take it could be like $100,000 to get a really good animal model for, a, for a, uh, a laboratory. And I went, wait a minute, that's not a gazillion, 100,000 I can do. <laughs> like, I, I think I could get that up, you know, raise that. Yeah. Um, so let me see if that would help. And, you know, we actually, one of the things we did early on, we funded a, a mouse model, um, for a researcher named Peter Jones, who's now actually out at University of Nevada. And one of the things that I've always had a stipulation on whenever we rate, whenever we donate money to researchers is that, um, we want them to share the information with as many people as they can. So he had this, this novel approach that was going to help, um, because there hadn't been a really definitive mouse model uh where you can give you can breed mice that will have the characteristics of the disease and then it helps you study the the things you're trying to uh use on it Mm
2: -hmm.
1: well he shared it now with dozens of labs around the world who are using this peter jones mouse or he'll call it the carino mice you know um and and it's helped advance other labs with their research and now we're at a point where there are numerous um clinical trials going on with pharmaceutical companies and uh and we continue to do things that are trying to fund things like biomarkers so that when you have these clinical trials you're able to see if it's working or not through blood tests and things like that. So there's plenty of things that we could talk about scientifically I don't want to bore your audience with it but um that story right there Janice is how regular people change the world. Yes. It's small steps. You, when you you know everything you talk about when you have when you're overwhelmed with things, just take the thing, the task in front of you, and get it done, and then that compounds, and that's how you that's how you cure diseases, that's how you change people's lives.
2: It's true. That's
1: why Janice Dean, you have medication that you can take, so that MS is not a uh, something that when you're diagnosed now. It is a, you know, your life is over.
0: It's true. Yeah. I mean, I was just at the neurologist yesterday and she said to me, because the current medication that I'm on, they don't like you to be on it for longer than five years. And I've been on Mm. it for two. And we were talking about what happens after that. And she said, you know, the advancements that we have made in MS research is really incredible, you know, Um, and they are very optimistic that even if we don't have a cure, we have Ways of halting the progression of the of the disease, so it is very optimistic. Yeah,
1: that's a and that's a big part of it. Also, I think a lot of a lot of the things that are down the pike for for FSHD is like, well, at, you know, worst case scenario, we can just halt the progression. Correct. And everybody with the disease would sign up for that. Yes. Immediately, you know, yeah. but then there's other things, you know, because then that can lead to something where. Uh, if it, as long as it stops, like you talk about that Dux 4 faucet that's on in people mm-hmm. with FSHD, if we can just turn that off, um, yes, it, it might not build the muscle back up. But if there's anything healthy, the body is very resilient. Yes. And if there's anything that's still left, if the muscles haven't been completely destroyed, um, you can build them back up. Or even then, there's other medications, other things that have been done that build muscle that maybe can help build it back up. So we're hopeful. I mean,
0: look at that. Look at what you've done uh, with your, you know, your advocacy and living with this to bring awareness. I think it's really important. I think a lot of people are starting to realize that, that we can't, you know, it's better to speak up and talk about it and connect with others because that, you know, that in turn will um, present opportunity.
1: Asking for help is, is a strength. It's not a weakness. It's perceived as a weakness, um, but sometimes you've got to raise your hand and tell people what you need help with. And and also when you talk about it, I think the other part of me telling my story, me coming on here with you, um, any anything that we've done like this in, in the past, it's just, it's getting the word out to as many people and it may not help. It, it, it may fall on a lot of deaf ears, but there may be people out there who need to hear it and also there may be people out there that hear it that need, that want to help. Yes. You know, so there's that one person that you connect with that goes, hey, that's a cause. I, 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 I haven't been able to tell anybody, but I have this disease too. And, um, and I have a lot of money and I'm going to try and you know, get involved in research. That's important also. Mm-hmm. You know, so just keep telling your story and it, it, it may help somebody.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast. Right after this, I want to briefly talk about your wife because, you know, my husband, he went through all of the stages of the diagnosis and uh, taking me to doctors. And um, one of the things that he said to me early on was, I'm not afraid of this. And to me, that was the biggest thing, aside from will you marry me, um, because you want to have a partner that isn't afraid of the unknown, which is what you and I deal with. And so tell me about how you met her. And I just do love the story of how she supports you. um, And, you know, and reinforces how brave you really are for opening up about what you've been diagnosed with.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I, uh, I already was diagnosed when I met Laura, my wife. Uh, And, um, it, it it was at a point though where I could still kind of cover it up mm. and I didn't have to come clean about it, so to speak. And because, you know, it, obviously where, where it can go. And, um, so we were, you know, a few months and we're getting serious and I came to a point where I guess I gotta, you know, have to tell her about this, you know, and what, and what could happen to me down the road. And, um, you know having a family all that kind of stuff it impacts all of that uh and i think when i told her there was a i'm, I'm sure there was a a fight or flight moment at that point for her and fortunately for me <laughs> she um she didn't run away from it yeah and and uh, you know a couple of years later we get married and i i can't i can't say it enough how much her love and support means to me mm the things that she has to help me do um, that you never want as a husband to have to lean on your spouse to do that. Mm. Um, And I, and I I go back to what she would always say to me is that, well, you, I'm sure you would do the same for me. Mm. And I would. Absolutely. I think what, when you're, when you're faced with something like this, you really understand you get to the, you get to the, you get to the point you know, you you get to the things that matter. Yes. Because there's so much stuff in your life that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And we bicker about it or you you, you take people for granted. Um, But when you really rely on someone emotionally, physically, um, it cuts out a lot of the BS.
2: Yes, it does. So
1: if you really find someone, you know, in sickness and in health, right? that's that's the value you take, and I think so many people just sort of just it it's just words, but when you really live it, i mean and you know that 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 you know you have somebody that loves you and 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 will will support you and then and be there when things go a different way because your life changes mm-hmm. and you know that that was I, I gave this speech at the very first dinner that we had for the foundation. And I said, there was a time, but you know, before I met my wife that I felt like damaged goods. Yeah. I was the, I was the dented can on the shelf and uh, that people were just going to leave there. And she was probably the first relationship that I had that I didn't, I didn't feel that way. And I wasn't afraid to be vulnerable. And, um, and you know, is it a, is it, you know, you have the same, it's still life. You know, you still have to deal with the same things that everybody deals with in your relationships, uh, et cetera. But um, it, it does, I, it's funny because I talk about a friend of mine who has, a, who has um, cerebral palsy, you know, who said to me, we, all, we wish we could have all figured out this stuff in a book. <laughs> but unfortunately, we have to go through it. We do. To learn these lessons. Um, but I think that's why people that are listening to this maybe who don't have the kind of issues that we have um, can understand it a little bit more and how they should approach their relationships in their life and know that, hey, um, that person that I'm with, it, 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 let, let, put away all the other BS and just get straight to the point. Do they love you? Would they do anything for you? Yes. That's what's most important.
0: Absolutely. And you know, tell me about your son because I didn't tell my kids about my diagnosis until um, my son Matthew had a teacher who was in a wheelchair, also diagnosed with MS, and he came home one day and told me about this teacher and how cool she was, and um, and how she discussed her illness in class, you know, obviously because she can't hide it. And Mm -hmm. I remember him coming home and telling me about her. And it was a beautiful way for me to say, I have that too. So how did you tell your son?
1: You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where he's growing up and, you know, he can see it. You know, I, I, I have to tell him, I can't, I, I can't go out and run like the other dads or, you know, and you're at your, you know, and, and listen, I still coached uh, little league and I still coached direct basketball. Um, but he knew from early on that there's just certain things that I have, a, I have something going on and there's certain things that I can't do. And he, but the other part of it, he's got to help me with a lot of stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And especially as he's gotten older, I mean, he's a, he's a great help, you know? And, and if sometimes, you know, we can get into, You know, logistics of how when I um, when I travel with the Nets, I have my partner, longtime radio partner, Tim Capstraw, who literally helps me with things in my room. Sometimes he'll have to help me get off the bed and and get up to my feet or, you know, get onto the chair. There's so many things that he does. Um, that I need that. And when I travel, I do NFL games for this Compass Media Networks who've always been so great and supportive. I have my neighbor goes with me because he loves football. He's got mm. the empty nest and he wants to go on the weekend trips with me and he can help me. So he comes with me. But then there are other times when I may need to go somewhere and, and my son will come now and he's 18 years old. He's 19 years old, just turned 19. So he can help me physically do those things. Yeah. Um, so he's had to help me with things that you never want to have your son, you know. Oh uh, have to help you do. And, uh, so he's seen it and it's just, it's, it's, it's normal. It's just what it is. I don't remember if there was a time where I had to have a talk with him about this is what it is. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, and, and the, the, the component, there is a component of that it can be passed along to your child. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so early on we, we went to doctors who would, uh, pediatricians who, we're part of the MDA and would be able to look at them and see if there's still signs. And, you know, so far, I mean, you know, knock on wood, it, it, it hasn't. Um, so there, there's that component of it as well. And, uh, you know, that's something that you have to face. So it, it listen, I think there's, there's, as my wife would always say, um, when I would, uh, be a little pitiful on myself about not being able to do certain things with my son that, you know, you would normally do if it was a healthy, uh, individual, um, she would say, yeah, but you're giving him so much more,
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) you know? So that's what I focus on. I, I, I think that's important too, is that you, you might not, I might not be able to go out and, 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 uh, throw a football with him, but the things that we're talking about here, that he's lived with that messaging that kind of parenting i mean those are things that you have to focus on what can you give you can't give something that that maybe the typical father gives but what are the things that you can give and um you know for me he's actually at the same college i went to he's working at the radio station he wants to do what i do (laughs) so i have that to pass along and i have that that i've kind of sparked that passion in him. So, uh, I'm not going to worry about some of the other stuff.
2: That's
0: beautiful. Tell me about what's coming up, you know, career wise for you. You love what you're doing right now. Can you see yourself doing anything else?
1: You know, I can, uh, I, the, 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 the the toughest part about being a sports broadcaster. Um, I mean, a lot of people would, would turn a, a game on, on the radio and think, how does he do that? that's easy for me, (laughs) right? That's the, calling a game, uh, describing it like an auctioneer uh, on the radio for people who can't see it. That's the easy part for me, you know, studying the game, um, preparing, that all stuff is fun. The hardest thing about being a broadcaster, even for the most healthy of, of us and young of us, is the travel. Yeah is is going to all these arenas. Now that's part of the juice, right? I mean, there's nothing so much, there, there's nothing I love more than, than outside of my, my family is sitting there in that arena when the ball is up and the game starts and I'm on the air and I'm calling the game and I'm in that environment. I love it. Yeah. It's getting there. Yeah. That's the hard part. Um, so how long I can do it is how long I can keep getting there
2: Yeah.
1: where the effort involved, it does not become so overwhelming that it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So I want to do it forever. <laughs> um, but you know, we're, we're going to keep doing it and we're going to keep taking it as it comes and keep going. And then what I recently discovered, I mean, I, I knew I can do it, but in the last year, I, the Nets asked me to do a podcast. So I have a podcast called the voice of the Nets and it, it's, it encompasses everything that I love, not just, not just the nets, but all different sports and sports media and all these people that I know have, have come on as guests. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll talk everything from, uh, you know, the football, baseball, uh, and then somebody's got a book about Pearl jam. And I want to talk about that. <laughs> like, you know, those are things, the things I'm passionate about. yeah Um, and I realized that I can do that and I can do it pretty well. And, that's something that I don't have to leave my house for. Right. And I think, you know, that is something I, that's the next frontier for me too, as well. I want to do more of that, more of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and if I have to, at some point down the road, you know, even people get older and they don't want to travel as much, um, maybe that can be, uh, where I can do that. mm so. <laughs> And I will say this too: that the nets allowed me. You know, the thing that came out of COVID um, was that we had done a lot of road games from a studio,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you watch the game on TV and do the games that way. Oh wow! Um, so it when when COVID was over, uh, they approached me and said, "Would would that be easier for you? Would you rather do it that way?" And I said, "Absolutely not. Wow! I still want to be in the arena." Yeah, but what we do is we'll do a handful of games from the studio to break up the schedule a little bit so it doesn't become as grueling. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something I can do a little bit more. It's not the best way to do it, but it's, I could still do it where you don't even know that I'm not there. So maybe down the road, when I've been to um, Milwaukee for the 52nd time in my life, <laughs> that it's not so much of a thrill the thrill of going to Milwaukee has worn off a little bit that yeah. um, I won't miss being there as much and, and doing in the studio will be palpable. Mm. You
0: know? Well, this is a cool way to continue your career, too. I love the podcast. I mean, I love talking to people, finding yeah. finding about their passions and, and how they got to where they are. Uh, and so I've really enjoyed our conversation. And tell me how people, um, if they want to reach out uh, to your foundation, how they can find it.
1: It's chriscarinofoundation.org, uh, Twitter, Instagram at Carino FSHD. Um, if you just Google me, everything comes up. So, uh, you know, we still, um, you know, try and raise money and we give it away and we've got projects going all over the country and hopefully we've, well over a million dollars that we've donated to research over the years, last 10 years, um, and if anybody out there, just even just to spread the word, even just share this interview with people and, uh, you know, hopefully you may reach someone who needs to to hear stuff.
0: Yep. Well, listen, um, to be continued, I want to help uh, in your journey and helping spread the word. And you've also really inspired me, you know, to do a little bit more um, in, in...
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I think it's important. I'm just happy to be on the Dean's List. I mean, that was the...
0: Well, you've made that, my friend. That was an easy one. I was doing
1: too much other stuff in college to make the dean's (laughs) list, but I knew one day. Well, then you know what you've
0: also done is you've inspired me to get, you know, the the actual document made. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, So you'll be able to put that on your wall.
1: Yes, exactly. That would be fantastic.
0: Oh, Chris, thank you so much. And again, this has been such a pleasure and, uh, and best of luck to you and please keep in touch. And, and, and I promise to, to do what I can to, to spread the word about your foundation.
1: Thank you so much, Janice. We're in a, we're in a small fraternity of, of media members who, who are going through, um, these life-changing, you know, experiences. So, uh, I, I feel like there is a fraternity there now that we are a part of that we didn't ask to be in, uh, we, we we didn't want to we didn't want to pledge, but we're together. So let's let's have each other. Let's we're, we're brothers and sisters. So we we'll are have each we're, other's back. We're
0: on the same team, my friend.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dennis.
0: You got it. Thanks again to Chris Carino for coming on the program to talk about his life, career, and incredible work with the Chris Carino Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the effort of eradicating the life-altering effects of fascio scapulo humeral muscular dystrophy. To find out more, you can head to his website at chriscarinofoundation.org. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Dean on Twitter or FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast.